So I want to talk today about why the Democrats and specifically why the mainstream media are so obsessed with this anniversary of January 6th, the anniversary, they say, of the insurrection at the Capitol, because this isn't your typical mainstream media sleight of hand. This isn't just your typical mainstream media bias. This is actually part of a concerted effort to do something even bigger for the Democrats to solidify or cement their agenda in an even more permanent way. And it's really important for us to understand what they're doing. But before we even talk about that, this I suppose is apropos of nothing, but I tweeted, I sent a tweet out yesterday that uh, about Joe Rogan and CNN that said Joe Rogan's audience is 11 times bigger than the average size audience of CNN primetime. And I tweeted LOL about this. It was, it was just a statistic I saw when I was reading. I was trolling the web. I saw the cable ratings for the week, which I always keep an eye on because kind of a nerd. I like to look at ratings. And I thought this was funny, especially given the fact that Joe Rogan has interviewed Dr. Robert Malone and other COVID experts. And I say that not tongue in cheek. I'm talking about actual experts on COVID-19. Dr. Peter McCullough, I think was the highest rated episode of the Joe Rogan experience ever in the history of his show. And I don't even know how many episodes he's done. But here's the thing. I sent this tweet because I thought it was interesting. Now, there are sort of two types of tweets that I send. Tweets that I think are informative and that other people should, or that might be helpful to other people to expose the truth, to share reality with other people. And then stuff that I just find to be interesting as my little nerdy self. I thought that this tweet about Joe Rogan and CNN fell in the latter category. I thought, oh, this is so interesting to me. But oftentimes things that are interesting to me wouldn't necessarily be as interesting to other people. But when I logged back in, when I got back on my Twitter app on my phone, this had something like 50,000 likes on it. It's now been seen by millions and millions of people. It went absolutely viral. It was crazy, so unpredictable, so funny too, that sometimes my tweets that I just quickly whip out are the ones that go wildly viral, whereas the ones that I put thought and research and time into don't. So that's, again, apropos of nothing. But I was thinking, why did this go viral? Why are so many people interested in the fact that Joe Rogan has 11 times more viewers than the average CNN primetime audience? And thinking about this, it's not just a victory for Joe Rogan or a victory for new media. It's actually bigger than that because Joe Rogan is not by any sense a conservative. He's not. In fact, he thinks that Barack Obama, these are his words, he thinks Barack Obama was the greatest president of all time, which is just so objectively ridiculous. This is so absurd, so wrong. It's such a bad take from Joe Rogan because Barack Obama, aside from the Biden administration, Barack Obama is probably the most liberal president, most radical leftist president that our country has ever seen. And I say that with full knowledge of the history of Jimmy Carter and Woodrow Wilson and LBJ and all of these terrible, horrible radical leftist presidents. So Joe Rogan is by no means a conservative. He is by no means part of the right wing or the Republican Party. He identifies as a leftist. And yet, it's Joe Rogan who is pushing back on the radical leftist element that has taken over the Democratic Party and taken over the mainstream media. And I think, I think one of the reasons that this tweet went viral is because as Americans, and it doesn't actually matter if you're a Democrat or Republican for this, this isn't a partisan wondering, but the American people are wondering what is going to happen to the Democratic Party especially now that the Democratic Party has exposed their true colors, now that they've exposed the fact that they support all of these lockdowns, that they want to mandate vaccines, that they want to forcibly mask children, that they want to double down on these policies, even when the empirical evidence shows that these policies don't work, when, they have, when they've embraced AOC's Green New Deal and Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, all of these socialist, Marxist, 
communist policies. The world is watching to see what will happen to the Democratic Party. Is this who the Democratic Party will become? Or will the Democratic Party push these extreme ideologies to the fringe of their party? Basically back to what Bernie Sanders was pre-2016, this fringe socialist of the party who did not represent the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. And so Rogan is maybe a perfect example of this. How is the Democratic Party going to handle Joe Rogan? Because this guy is a powerful guy, an influential guy. This is not some guy doing a podcast from his basement. This is someone who is listened to by just about the entire country. The Dr. Peter McCullough interview, I think, was listened to by 40 million people, and that was a number I saw a week ago. I don't even know what the cumulative number is now. 40 million people watched that interview where Joe Rogan was talking to Dr. Peter McCullough about the policies of COVID from our government officials about early treatment, therapeutics, vaccines, Fauci, you name it, all of the controversial stuff. And so I think one of the reasons that this tweet went viral is because we wonder, how is the Democratic Party going to react? Is Are people like Joe Rogan, and maybe there aren't people like him, maybe it is just him, maybe it is just a person, is Joe Rogan going to be instrumental in reining in the radical leftist element that has overtaken the Democratic Party, or is this man who identifies as a leftist, who thinks that Barack Obama was the greatest president in the history of our nation, the best president, I should say, in the history of our nation, is the radical leftist element of the Democratic Party going to push this leftist into the Republican side of the camp? Push him to the right? Are they going to reject this course correction? Reject the, I don't want to say moderate, because I don't think the Democratic Party has ever been moderate, but they certainly comparatively were less extreme than they are now. Are they going, what are they going to do with their party? And Joe Rogan might be the perfect case study in how the Democratic Party reacts to this. So the idea that I sent out a tweet that took me 10 seconds to compose based on a fact that I, nerdily, who likes to troll the ratings, thought was interesting, that Joe Rogan gets 11 times bigger audience than CNN primetime, which is, by the way, it is just funny too, because CNN is so desperate for ratings. They think that they are just the primary source of news. They even bulk up their ratings with the airport ratings that they get, that they pay to be an airport, so everyone's subjected to CNN when they fly, and yet they still can't compete with Joe Rogan's podcast. What does this mean for the Democratic Party? I don't know. I certainly don't know, but I do think it'll be very interesting to watch and see. But now, now I want to talk about why the mainstream media and why the Democrats are so obsessed with the false narrative that they're painting about January 6th. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. So I'm sure you noticed, just like I noticed, just like everybody who's opened a website, a news website, or gotten a push notification, or opened Twitter, or turned on cable news, or listened to a podcast, or listened to the radio, the left is obsessed with January 6th. And not January 6th, 2022, they're obsessed with January 6th, 2021, the so-called insurrection, the violent riots that happened at the Capitol. They're obsessed with it. And they're framing their coverage of the one-year anniversary of January 6th in a very disingenuous way. That we know, that we know. The leftist bias is, in, is inherent to their coverage this year of what happened last year, but it's actually worse than that. This is, the way that they are framing their coverage of January 6th actually exposes a very, very dangerous strategy that the left is employing. They are using January 6th as a tactic in their strategy to basically 
cement their power in government forever. And we're going to talk about exactly what I mean, not hypothetically, in practicality in just a second. But first, I want to talk to you about Soul. Soul is the sponsor of today's episode. So thank you to Soul. Soul is a sustainable orthopedic footwear company that seeks to enhance your mobility and improve your foot health to keep you in the game longer by building shoes from the inside out. It's no secret that 85% of the population will have one or more foot-related ailments in their life. A lot of, admittedly, unsexy ailments that can be helped with a footbed. Soul has created a footbed. They define it as a great place to rest your soul. It's affordable, customizable, and it improves people's everyday foot comfort. Millions of customers rave about this product, and two-thirds of Soul customers have two or more pairs of footbeds. Once you know the comfort, the pain relief, the performance enhancement, and injury prevention benefits of Soul footbeds, you will want them in every shoe you own. Soul has an amazing offer for first-time customers, 50% off if you use my URL. That's yoursoul.com slash Liz, yoursoul.com slash Liz, so you can try Soul for yourself. They are so confident that you will love their products that they offer a 90-day money-back guarantee. It's very hard to go wrong with that. This offer is applicable to all items on the Soul store, be it footbeds or footwear. That's yoursoul.com slash Liz, yoursoul, S-O-L-E dot com slash Liz. So we talked a little bit yesterday about the truth about what happened on January 6th because we know that the radical left and the mainstream media, one and the same, are disingenuous. In fact, they're outright liars. Let's just say it how it is. They're outright liars about what happened on January 6th. They're ignoring questions that should be asked, and they're painting it in a way that simply doesn't reflect what actually happened. But the question that I want to talk about today, I want to explore this a little bit. I want to explore why. Why are the Democrats and the mainstream media so obsessed with January 6th and so obsessed with their false narrative about January 6th? President Trump is not the president anymore. Joe Biden has occupied the Oval Office for almost a year. So this isn't just about Trump derangement syndrome. This isn't just about hating Donald Trump. This isn't just about trying to hurt Donald Trump. This isn't just about trying to change voters' minds about Donald Trump. It actually isn't about Donald Trump at all. They're just using Donald Trump. The radical left and the mainstream media are just using what happened on January 6, 2021 as a way to give themselves essentially power in government forever. And what I mean by this is you can look at any headline from any news organization that is not explicitly right-wing. So I mean, even even centrist organizations or so-called centrist organizations, certainly left-wing organizations, they all brand or describe January 6, 2021 in the same way. They say it is a threat to democracy. What happened at the Capitol that day was a direct threat to our democracy. Now, this phrase is extremely important. This phrase, and they're all using it. This is a talking point that was obviously passed around and specifically chosen. They were specifically told to use this specific phrase, a threat to our democracy. Now, why are they branding what happened on January 6th in this way? Why are they branding it as a threat to our democracy? And by the way, I said yesterday, I'll repeat it again, violence at the Capitol that happened on January 6th was wrong. The relatively small number of people, the fringe elements of an otherwise peaceful protest, the fringe elements who committed violence, that was wrong. They should be held accountable for it. No one's excusing that. The reason I say this is because the mainstream media and the left always try to misconstrue. They deliberately misinterpret in order to misconstrue what I say, in order to make it seem like I'm either justifying violence or, you know, like they did with Trump, inciting violence. They intentionally misunderstand and misrepresent what we say to make us look bad. We're not going to let them do that. 
So they brand this as a threat to our democracy. And the reason why is simple. The reason why is because if there is a threat, a threat is a problem. A threat needs to be addressed. A threat needs to be fixed. There needs to be a solution to the problem that causes a threat. And right there, therein lies the strategy of the radical left. So if a threat to our democracy is a problem, then who can save us from this threat? Who can be the savior that saves our country, that saves our democracy? Well, the way the mainstream media is teeing this up, and of course, this is a talking point that I assume came from the radical left, who can save us? The answer to that, according to the the Democrats and the mainstream media, is the Democrats can save us. The Democrats can save us from this threat to democracy if only, if only the crisis that they have created, because this is not an ongoing crisis, the crisis that they created, the idea that we are commemorating the anniversary of January 6th, this threat to our democracy. So this crisis that they created, if it's severe enough that they can justify abolishing the filibuster, And believe me, that's what all these headlines are doing. These headlines are trying to paint the picture of a crisis so severe that it justifies abolishing norms and changing the rules in the Senate to abolish the filibuster in order to ram through a radical leftist agenda. Now, what is this radical leftist agenda? The radical leftist agenda that Chuck Schumer wants to ram through are election-related laws and rules. It is essentially a federal takeover of our election systems, a federal takeover of election systems that constitutionally belong to each state individually. This, they say, is the only way to save democracy. This election-related bill is the answer to the threat to democracy that was posed by these insurrectionists on January 6th. The only way to preserve and protect our democracy is to make sure that our elections, that this election reform happens. But what actually happens if the Democrats' election agenda passes into law is the federal government gets control of our elections. The federal government mandates things like universal mail-in ballots. They mandate things like counting, early voting. States must do this, the federal government wants to say, or the Democrats want the federal government to say, for two weeks prior to the election. And what happens when the federal government takes over, if they stage a takeover of state elections. Well, what happens is the Democrats who are currently in charge of the federal government get to make rules and make laws that they have given themselves the power to do that will advantage them in elections. It's a way of securing themselves power from now into perpetuity. Now, the problem here, and this is, this is the problem here is that a lot of the American people don't want the Senate to abolish the filibuster. This is not a popular idea on the left. Even Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema don't support abolishing the filibuster. I mean, you go back just to 2005, even Chuck Schumer himself did not support abolishing the filibuster. Barack Obama at one time said he didn't support abolishing the filibuster. Most people, most of the American people want the Democrats to adjust their policies, make them less radical in order to get enough support in the Senate from moderate or even Republican senators in order to pass that agenda versus abolishing the filibuster, ignoring moderates and Republicans, and ramming through the radical leftist agenda without any bipartisan support. 
And so looking at what's happening or looking at the mindset, understanding the mindset of the American people, how they don't want the filibuster abolished. They don't want this bitter partisan Senate. They want some kind of cooperative action between Democrats and Republicans. The Democrats said, okay, but we don't want to cooperate. We want our radical leftist agenda. We want to abolish the filibuster. How do we convince the American people to get on our side? How do we change the mindset of the American people? Well, the American people are willing, we've seen the last almost two years, they are willing to sacrifice and surrender rights and liberties to the government if they believe it's an emergency. If there's a crisis that they believe must be addressed, they're willing to surrender some of their liberty for the security of fixing the crisis. And so what do the Democrats do? They create a crisis. They create a crisis that they say is ongoing. And when I say ongoing, I don't mean that the few fringe radicals who committed violence on January 6, 2021 at the Capitol, I don't mean that they're continuing to commit violence. They're not. This was not pre-planned. This was not preconceived. This was not coordinated in any way, especially by those who broke in. No, no. They're trying to make it seem like this is the Republican Party because this is the only way to put the fear in the minds of the American people. And so a perfect example of this, as, I, as I'm thinking about this concept, as I'm looking at all of the news articles that are coming out in these, in these days leading up to January 6, 2022, and I'm wondering why are Democrats making such a big deal about this? Why are they all in tandem using the exact same talking points, talking about a threat to democracy? Why are they all talking about how January 6th is just the beginning well, the New York Times answered my question. The New York Times published an article literally called Every Day is January 6th Now. Every day is January 6th Now. Now, that's a ridiculous title to begin with, but there's so much ridiculous in this article. And they actually explain in this article exactly what the Democrats' strategy, what their tactic is. Now, they lie. They use lies. They use deception, which is the same as lies, but it's deception using a distraction so that people don't notice what they're doing behind the scenes. That's different, I think, than telling a deliberate falsehood to someone's face. And they do so admittedly, although they don't admit it till the very bottom of the article, because it's necessary in their effort to abolish the filibuster. So I, I want to read this article to show you what I mean. This is what the New York Times says. And by the way, even the way the New York Times describes the authors of this article, the editorial board, is hilarious. They say, the editorial board is a group of opinion journalists whose views are informed by expertise, research, debate, and certain longstanding values. It's separate from the newsroom. And my response to that is just, LOL, expertise, research, debate, and certain longstanding values. What values? What values are you possibly talking about? Are you talking about lying? Are you talking about communism? because that's what is reflected in this piece. This is what they write. One year after the smoke and broken glass, the mock gallows and the very real bloodshed of that awful day, it's tempting to look back and imagine that we can in fact simply look back. To imagine that what happened on January 6, 2021, a deadly riot at the seat of American government, I'm gonna be interrupting myself a lot, a deadly riot, it was deadly. Who died and who did the killing? Think about this. A deadly riot insinuates that the rioters committed deadly acts. The rioters did not commit deadly acts. A police officer died because he had a pre-existing stroke condition. Ashley Babbitt was murdered by a Capitol Hill police officer. She was shot by a Capitol Hill police officer. So a rioter died 
There were others who died of drug overdoses and cardiac events. And then there are questions about whether one of the women who it was reported died of a drug overdose actually died of a drug overdose because there's video showing what looks to be a law enforcement officer brutally beating her. So yes, it was a deadly riot, but the rioters killed no one. The New York Times, of course, does not mention that. Let me pause this article for one second. We'll get right back to it. But first, I want to talk about Lucy. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Finally, tobacco alternatives that don't suck. Researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not patients. Lucy has created a nicotine gum and a lozenge. Now, this product is convenient. It's discreet. Products can be enjoyed anywhere on flights, at work, on the go, even at the gym. It's 2022, people. Get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, and you don't have to leave your house because Lucy has delivery down. Just for listeners of this show, I have a special deal. You go to lucy.co, you use my promo code, it's promo code Liz, to get 20% off all products on your first order. Now, obviously, this includes gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code Liz at checkout. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Lucy.co and be sure to use that promo code Liz for my special deal. 20% off all the products in your first order. Lucy.co, promo code Liz. They say a deadly riot at the seat of the American government incited by a defeated president amid a last-ditch effort to thwart the transfer of power to his successor. Again, incited by a defeated president. What does this mean? Did Donald Trump tell peaceful protesters to become violent? Did he tell them to break into the Capitol? No, he didn't. Did he look the other way while this was happening? No, he didn't. What did he say at that rally on January 6th? He said, go to the Capitol and peacefully and powerfully protest. Peacefully and powerfully protest. And then when, it, when the violence was happening, when it was unfolding them, he told them to go home. He told them to stop committing violence. But that, not included by the New York Times, they just say incited by a defeated president amid a last ditch effort to thwart the transfer of power to his successor was horrifying, but that is in the past and that we as a nation have moved on. This is an understandable impulse. The New York Times condescendingly allows us that feeling. After four years of chaos, cruelty and incompetence culminating in a pandemic. By the way, the cruelty, I'm sure, again, they don't define what they're talking about, but I'm sure they're referring to the kids in cages thing because that was the defining narrative. That was what the left looked at Trump, that he's cruel. He put migrant children in cages. Let's remember who built those cages and who first implemented that policy, and that was Obama and Biden during their administration. Again, the New York Times doesn't mention that. After four years of chaos, cruelty, and incompetence culminating in a pandemic and the once unthinkable trauma of January 6th, most Americans were desperate for some peace and quiet. On the surface, we have achieved that. Our political life seems more or less normal these days. Does it? Does our political life seem more or less normal? When we have children, three and four-year-olds masked in school, forced to eat outside in a 30 and 40 degree weather because Fauci and his ilk and an incompetent and corrupt Biden administration refuse to listen to the science and are willing to use children as political shields for their radical left-wing agenda, is that more or less normal to you? Because it's not normal to the American people. Our political life, they say, seems more or less normal these days as the president pardons turkeys and Congress quarrels over spending bills. But peel back a layer and things are far from normal. January 6th is not in the past. It is every day 
the hyperbole here is embarrassing for the New York Times. It is regular citizens, they write, who threaten elected officials and other public servants who ask, when can we use the guns? How many people have asked that question? Is this a widespread thing? Is this a movement? No. There are always going to be radical fringe nuts on both sides of the aisle. And fortunately, they're few and far between. Fewer and further between on the right than on the left who justifies violent riots, arson, looting, destruction of property, assault on police officers in cities all across the country under the guise of Black Lives Matter. But I digress. Who ask, when can we use guns and who vow to murder politicians who dare to vote, vote their conscience? It is Republican lawmakers scrambling to make it harder for people to vote. Where is that happening? Where is it harder for people to vote? Because if you're talking about voter ID, there is study after study that shows that voter participation actually increases when voter ID is required, when it is the law. It's not discrimination. It's not voter suppression. It doesn't disproportionately impact people of color to require them to have voter ID. It's insulting to suggest that people of color aren't capable of getting a government-issued ID. And statistically, statistically, 3% of black people don't have a government-issued ID. 2% of white people don't have a government-issued ID. So if you actually do the math, given how many total people of color are in our country and how many total white people are in our country, more white people don't have a government-issued ID than black people. But again, the New York Times, not so much with the facts. It's Republican lawmakers, they say, scrambling to make it harder for people to vote and easier to subvert their will if they do. It's Donald Trump who continues to stoke the flames of conflict with his rampant lies and limitless resentments and whose twisted version of reality still dominates one of the nation's two major political parties. Maybe one half the country has lost faith in a government institution like a presidential election, instead of being so narcissistic and egotistical and condescending, the New York Times should ask, why have people lost faith in this institution? What have we done, the media, what have our government officials done to make people, that many people, lose faith? But the New York Times is not interested in what the sorry people think. They're only interested in what they and their elitist bubble think. They say, in short, the Republic faces an existential threat from a movement that's openly contemptuous of democracy and has shown that it is willing to use violence to achieve its ends. No self-governing society can survive such a threat by denying that it, is, it exists. Remember when Democrats denied that Antifa existed? They said it was just an idea. They denied that it existed. Rather, the New York Times says, survival depends on looking back and forward at the same time. Truly grappling with the threat ahead means taking full account of the terror of that day a year ago. Thanks largely to the dogged work of a bipartisan committee in the House of Representatives. I laugh at this sentence because bipartisan committee, this is Pelosi's committee. She wouldn't let McCarthy put the Republicans he chose on this committee and said she chose never Trump Liz Cheney and never Trump Adam Kinzinger for this committee so that she could claim it had both Republicans and Democrats, even though these so-called Republicans on the committee only support Democrat agendas here, at least in this case. Thanks largely, the New York Times says, to the dogged work of a bipartisan committee in the House of Representatives, their reckoning, this reckoning is underway. We now know that the violence and mayhem broadcast live around the world was only the most visible and visceral part of the effort to overturn the election. The effort extended all the way into the Oval Office, where Mr. Trump and his allies plotted a constitutional self-coup. So what they're talking about here, this again, they don't, they don't describe what they're talking about because they are engaging in deception. They're trying to plant an idea in your mind without giving you all the information. And so they're planting a false idea, hoping that you won't do the research. What they're talking about is a series of memos that the Trump world, meaning Trump's advisors and people on his campaign and administration, on his campaign team and administration, passed around talking about what the options were to contest the electoral college, the certification of the electoral votes. Now, again, 
the certification of the electoral votes, this is not something that can, the idea that one party contests this is not new. The Democrats have questioned this multiple times. It's probably going to be questioned in the future. And the Republicans, the Donald Trump administration was questioning what is the role of the vice president in the certification of the electoral college? Because we know that if a state sends two batches of electoral voters, if they send two slates of voters, then the vice president can send one back to the state, can reject it and send it back to the state. And there was a question, and this is still an open question, actually. I don't think there's any definitive answer on, on, on this question, but there's still a question of when a state sends just one slate of electors, does the vice president then have a right to send that back if there are election issues in that state? Or for the vice president to send a slate of electors back, does the state need to send two slates of electors? That was the crux of the memos that were being circulated in the Trump orb um, prior to the certification of the electoral college vote. But the New York Times, again, not so much on the details. They don't want you to know the truth of what's going on. They go on to say, we now know that top Republican lawmakers and right-wing media figures privately understood how dangerous the riot was and pleaded with Mr. Trump to call a halt to it, even as they publicly pretended otherwise. I've talked multiple times already about how the Fox News texts to Mark Meadows were not a smoking gun. I'm not going to repeat myself. You can go back to prior episodes and listen to why that's not a smoking gun in any sense. But the New York Times, again, not so much with the facts. Even as they publicly pretended otherwise, we now know that those who may have or critical information about the planning and execution of the attack are refusing to cooperate with Congress, even if it means being charged with criminal contempt. Covered that as well. Mark Meadows refusing to abuse exe Trump's executive privilege until Trump has released that himself is hardly being unwilling to release critical information. The New York Times says, for now, the committee's work continues. It has scheduled a series of public hearings in the new year to lay out these and other details, and it plans to release a full report of its findings before the midterm elections. A full report excluding, of course, Ray Epps and questions about federal involvement. Even Newsweek released an article talking about these elite Department of Justice militant forces that were milling around before, at least on January 5th beforehand, and probably within the protests on January 6th. This isn't a question of whether the feds were involved, it's a question of how much the feds were involved here. So it's not a full report unless it includes that. And believe me, Nancy Pelosi's and Liz Cheney's committee will not be, will not be issuing a full report. But they plan to issue this report before the midterm elections. The Times says, after which, should Republicans regain control of the House as expected, the committee will undoubtedly be dissolved. This is where looking forward comes in. Over the past year, Republican lawmakers in 41 states have been trying to advance the goals of the January 6th rioters. Such liars, the New York Times is not by breaking laws, but by making them. Hundreds of bills have been proposed, and nearly three dozen laws have been passed that empower state legislatures to sabotage their own elections and overturn the will of their voters, according to a running tally by a nonpartisan consortium of pro democracy organizations. Okay, let's just unpack this paragraph for a second. So there is a right way and a wrong way to change election law. The wrong way is by violence. The wrong way is by politicians or bureaucrats changing law when they have no authority to do so. We saw that in Pennsylvania, for example. We saw that during the 2020 presidential election when state legislatures were not the ones to change state election law, but random 
unelected board officials changed laws that they had no right, no power, no authority to change. That is the illegal way to try to change election laws. The legal way to change election laws is for state legislatures to do so. So here we have the New York Times saying that hundreds of bills have been proposed and nearly three dozen laws have been passed that empower state legislatures to sabotage their own elections. What does that mean, sabotage their own elections? Are you talking about voter ID? Are you talking about making prohibiting ballot harvesting and universal mail-in voting and 24-hour um, voting boxes that are not being watched at all times? Are you talking about different laws that secure the integrity of each and every one of our votes? Because this is, these are the laws that have passed. I mean, we saw this in Texas. We saw this in Florida. We saw this in Georgia. We saw this in Arizona. These are the laws that have been passed in states across the country. And these states are going about it the correct way. The state legislature is debating and then voting on these bills and then sending it to the governor to be signed. The New York Times, again, they don't tell you what is in these laws. They just tell you what they think of them. Some bills, they said, would change the rules to make it easier for lawmakers to reject the votes of their citizens if they don't like the outcome. It's not if they don't like the outcome. It's if signatures don't match. It requires signature verification because without signature verification, there is the opportunity, the vulnerability for fraud. So it has nothing to do with the outcome. It has to do with securing each and every vote and each and every voter. Others, the New York Times say, says, replace professional election officials with partisan actors who have a vested interest in seeing their preferred candidate win. Everybody's partisan. There's no such thing as someone without an opinion on elections, without an opinion on politics. It simply doesn't exist. The New York Times says, yet more attempts to criminalize human errors by election officials, in some case, even threatening prison. Yeah, this is true. If an election official essentially commits fraud, if they prevent people from watching, if they prevent poll watchers from having access, then yes, these state legislatures are making that a crime because it's so serious. The threat of fraud is so serious. It's so necessary to protect the integrity of our votes that if someone impedes that, it should be a crime. The Times says many of these laws are being proposed and passed in crucial battleground states like Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. In the aftermath of the 2020 election, the Trump campaign targeted voting results in all these states, suing for recounts or trying to intimidate officials into finding missing votes. We all looked at the transcript of that call with the Georgia Secretary of State. He was not trying to intimidate the man into finding votes. He said, there are irregularities, address them. He didn't say invent them, he said address them. The effort, the Times said, failed, thanks primarily to the professionalism and integrity of election officials, barf. Many of these officials have since been stripped of their power, pushed out of office, and replaced by people who openly say the last election was fraudulent. Okay, now here's where we get to the strategic parts. Thus, the Capitol riot continues in state houses across the country in a bloodless, legalized form that no police officer can arrest and that no prosecutor can try in court. Yeah, you mean democracy? You mean a representative republic where the people vote to elect representatives who in the state capitals make laws protecting the people's votes, the integrity of the people's votes. This is a bloodless, legalized form of insurrection. No, this is democracy. This is democracy. The New York Times is so crazy. I mean, this is 
This is nutso. This isn't the first time state legis legislatures have tried to wrest control of electoral votes from their people, nor is it the first time that the dangers of such a ploy have been pointed out. In 1891, President Benjamin Harrison warned Congress of the risk that such a trick could determine the outcome of a presidential election. They go on, the New York Times goes on to quote Benjamin Harrison. They then go on to talk about the strategy here, right? They say a healthy functioning political party faces its electoral losses by assessing what went wrong and redoubling its efforts to appeal to more voters the next time. Oh, like Al Gore did in 2000? Or like Hillary Clinton did in 2016? Like Stacey Abrams did down in Georgia? Oh no, 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 wait a second. Each and every time the Democrats have lost in the past what, like 20, 25 years, 30 years almost, they've contested the results. They've questioned the legitimacy of the election. But a healthy functioning party, according to the Times, faces its electoral loss by just trying to appeal to new voters. Ridiculous. The Republican Party, they say, like authoritarian movements the world over, oh my, now we're authoritarian movements, has shown itself recently to be incapable of doing this. Party leaders' rhetoric suggests they see it they see it as the only legitimate governing power and thus portrays anyone else's victory as the result of fraud, hence the foundational falsehood that spurred the January 6th attack that Joe Biden didn't win the election. They then quote Kinzinger, but I won't sport with your intelligence by also quoting. Um, they say polling finds the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of Republicans believe that President Biden was not legitimately elected and that about one third approve of using violence to achieve political goals. Wait, just a second. We talked about this yesterday. Imagine being so dishonest that you frame the Washington Post poll that said, the Washington Post poll found that one out of every three people in our country think that in certain circumstances, violence can sometimes be justified against the government. That's all it was. That's all the poll was. In certain circumstances, one out of every three people, 34% of people to be exact, think that violence can sometimes be justified against a government. But the New York Times paints this poll as about one third approve of using violence to achieve political goals. That's an outright lie. An outright, they're misinterpreting this to manipulate you, to manipulate me, to manipulate the American people. Put those two numbers together, the Times says, and you have a recipe for extreme danger. Political violence is not an inevitable outcome. They say Republican leaders could help by being honest with their voters and combating the extremists in their midst. Throughout, throughout American history, party leaders from Lincoln to Margaret Chase Smith to McCain have stood up for the union and democracy first to their everlasting credit. And here's the kicker. After this whole article, the Times finally gets to it. Democrats, they say, are not helpless either. They hold unified power in Washington for the first time in what may be a long time. Yet they have so far failed to confront the urgency of this moment. Unwilling or unable to take action to protect elections from subversion and sabotage, blame Senator Joe Manchin or Senator Kirsten Sinema, but the only thing that matters in the end is whether you get it done. That's a pretty damn serious sentence right there. The only thing that matters in the end is whether you get it done. The Times says for that reason, Mr. Biden and other leading Democrats should make use of what remaining power they have to end the filibuster for voting rights legislation, even if nothing else. And there, ladies and gentlemen, we have it. I said at the beginning, they create this threat. They say January 6th was a threat to our democracy. It's an ongoing threat, actually. They're inventing this continued threat. How do we solve this threat? They ask, well, we, the Democrats, they say, we will be your savior. We will save you from authoritarianism and destruction. 
We will save our democracy. How? By abolishing the filibuster. You must let us abolish the filibuster, they say, even if you otherwise didn't support this policy. It's necessary. It's necessary to solve the problem, to save our democracy. Because the only way to save democracy, they say, is to pass voting legislation that solidifies federal power over state elections, therefore solidifying Democrat rule in our government in perpetuity. And the New York Times, in what, like paragraph 100, finally admits it. They say, whatever happens in Washington in the months and years to come, Americans of all stripes who value their self-government must mobilize at every level, not once every four years, to win elections and help protect the basic functions of democracy. And they go on and on. But the crux of the article is that one sentence. For that reason, Mr. Biden and other leading Democrats should make use of what remaining power they have to end the filibuster for voting rights legislation, even if nothing else. I did a quick Google search right here sitting before we started the show to look at the headlines from every kind of left-wing outlet. I actually didn't even put left-wing outlet in. I just, I brought my Google search. It's still up right here. I brought my Google search up and I just put January 6th, enter into the Google search. This is what I found. Each and every headline from all kinds of organizations is purporting this exact same narrative. We have from Business Insider, Trump January 6th anniversary speech will defend protesters, instead blame Antifa and the FBI. Why does this headline structured the way that it is? To paint the entire Republican Party as violent. Why? To paint this illusion of an ongoing insurrection. Then we have the New York Times, another headline, the January 6th committee's consideration of a criminal referral explained. Why is the January 6th committee even considering a criminal referral? Because Liz Cheney doesn't want Trump to ever even be allowed to run for president again. It's not what the the first New York Times article that I mentioned, or that I that we just read through, is not what they said about accepting your losses and trying to appeal to new voters. No, no. The Democrats don't want to appeal to new voters. They want to prevent the voters from having the candidate that the voters want. Again, so they create this illusion of it's so necessary. It's a threat. It's an ongoing threat. January 6th is every day. Vox, how does this end? Where the crisis in American democracy might be headed. Look at this verbiage. It's an ongoing threat, they tell us. An ongoing threat. CNN, the January 6th interim report is critical to saving U.S. democracy. Oh, because democracy is under threat. And who's the savior to that democracy? Oh, the Democrats. The Democrats are the saviors. Well, that makes sense. Why then, according to CBS, Biden and Harris to speak, marking the one-year anniversary since January 6th. Why are they speaking? Because they want to be the saviors. Why do they want to be the saviors? Because it's the only justification for abolishing the filibuster that the majority of the American people do not want abolished. In fact, here are the exact statistics of how the American people feel about the filibuster. Uh, I want to share those with you in just a second. But first, I want to talk to you about American Hartford Gold. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed everything is getting expensive. We are in the biggest economic crisis since 2008. Consumer prices are the highest we have seen in 30 years. Inflation is certainly here to stay, so it seems. And if the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, the dollar could continue its free fall and lose its coveted role as the world reserve currency. So how do you protect your money? your retirement, your savings. Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. 
They'll even help move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market into a precious metals IRA. And they make it easy. They're the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait, call them now. Call 855-768-1883. That's 855-768-1883 or text Liz to 65532. Again, that's 855-768-1883 or text Liz to 65532. You won't regret it. You'll be glad you did. Okay, so the exact numbers of people who want the filibuster to remain intact, 60% of Americans think Biden should make his radical policies less radical in order to make them more appetizing to moderates versus abolishing the filibuster and ignoring moderates. 59% of people in this poll said if Manchin Uh, that said that Manchin's pledge to protect the filibuster makes them more likely to vote for him next time he's on the ballot. 65% of people in this poll said they were more likely to vote for Sinema if she continued to support preserving the filibuster. This is something the American people want. The American people don't want the radical left to abolish the norms that are in the Senate. And just to put this in historical context here, this idea that you need 60 votes in the Senate, this is one of the, the ways that the Senate is differentiated from the House of Representatives. The House of Representatives is always going to be a dog-eat-dog, a very partisan situation. But the Senate is supposed to be, or it was intended to be, a more deliberative body, a more philosophical body, a body that had more unanimity to their decisions. In fact, the 60-vote threshold, the filibuster, of course, is something that protects the 60-vote threshold. But the 60-vote threshold is actually significantly lower than the agreement, the bipartisan agreement that was required in the Senate for most of American history. It's actually the lowest threshold since 1975. Or the 60-vote threshold required since 1975, I should say, is the lowest since the turn of the 19th century. Um, Back then, originally, 100% unanimous voting was required. 100% agreement was required originally in the Senate for more than 100 years. Every senator had to agree. This was then cut to two-thirds from 1917 to 1975. That's pretty incredible then that the Democrats want to abolish this tradition when it just takes us further and further away from the original intention of the founders when they constructed the Senate differently than the House of Representatives. But all of this to say, all of this to say, the reason that the Democrats, the reason why the Democrats and the mainstream media are portraying the anniversary of the insurrection on January 6th the way that they are is because they have to. They have to pretend that this is an ongoing threat to our democracy so that they can be the saviors. The only way they can save our democracy, they say, is by abolishing the filibuster, which people don't want abolished, in order to ram through their partisan voting legislation that would damage the integrity of our elections, give the federal government power over state governments and solidify Democrats as being in political power from now till kingdom come, from now until perpetuity. Don't fall for it, push back on it. This is absolutely egregious. They have to create this crisis. Okay, another crisis, another crisis of a little bit lesser, lesser proportion here. I got a very bad review on Apple Podcasts for this show, a very bad review, a two-star review. So egregious, so awful. I'm so, I'm so not even angry. I'm so upset about this. I read every one of these reviews on Apple Podcasts. Let me read you this review. 
The reviewer's name, I kid you not, the reviewer's name is Dog and a Half. And Dog and a Half says, two-star review, I found Liz a well-read, no-nonsense, freedom-loving conservative voice. I was disappointed in the last episode hearing a California vegan preaching lifestyle. Okay, Dog and a Half. Dog and a Half, let's talk about this for a second. First of all, a two-star rating hurts my feelings. A two-star rating is very mean. It's very rude. And let's break down what you're talking about here. So even though you find me to be well-read and no-nonsense and freedom-loving and a conservative voice, you still give me a two-star rating because you don't agree with the way that I eat. So first of all, I don't preach. I don't care how you eat. I don't don't evangelize eating vegan. The reason that I shared with my audience that I eat a whole food plant-based diet is because one of my advertisers is a meat delivery service and I do not eat meat because it causes me inflammation. And to manage my health problems, I eat a very low inflammation diet. And to be perfectly upfront and honest with you, my viewers, I said, I don't eat meat, but my husband really enjoys this product. It was me being above board. But like I said, I hope you don't have to eat the way that I eat. It's a pain to eat the way that I eat but I'm certainly not trying. I'm not preaching. I'm not trying to get you to eat this way. Second of all, California lifestyle. I do love California. I don't love it because it's liberal. I love it in spite of the fact that it's liberal. It breaks my heart to see California politicians ruining California. California used to be the golden state, the land of opportunity. It's paradise in California, or it was until liberal politicians have ruined it. It breaks my heart to see this exodus of conservatives from California, and I myself am one of them. I moved away from California last year. But it breaks my heart to see conservatives just abandoning, surrendering California to the radical left instead of fighting for her. Because we can actually win back California. It's not something to be written off the state. We should fight for her. That's all I've said about California. So this idea that I'm preaching a California California vegan lifestyle, dog and a half, if you had taken the time to listen, you would know that your two-star rating is total BS. Your two-star rating is BS. Please, everyone else, um, if you disagree with Dog and a Half, leave me a five-star rating and a glowing review. Tell Dog and a Half why you think that I deserve more than a a silly little two-star rating. On that note, the great and powerful Jay Hay says, I got to stop talking, but I'll be back tomorrow. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.